Hello, and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Guernsey is a leading jurisdiction in the development of green and sustainable finance, and as part of that, we've developed this podcast series where I'm speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name's Dr. Andy Sloan. I'm the Deputy Chief Executive here at Guernsey Finance, the promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector. I established our steering group, Guernsey Green Finance, and today I'm delighted to speak to Robert King, Head of Sustainable Finance, HSBC UK. Good afternoon, Robert. How are you? Hi, Andy. Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invite. Pleased to, pleased to be here today. That's brilliant. And I'm pleased to have you and welcome you to this podcast formally. As you were, as you're aware, we've got this In Conversation with Guernsey Green podcast series. And to date, given who we are, we've been focused on the role of private capital and financing sustainability. So it's going to be a really interesting turn for our listeners today to gain a slightly different perspective from a corporate leader in the UK market, but also globally. And we're here to talk about the UK, so not just any old corporate uh, leader or lender in the UK market, but one that's walked away with the accolade of Western Europe's best bank for sustainable finance in recent weeks. So congratulations, Robert. And as a starter for 10, perhaps you could tell me a little bit about the work of HSBC and your team in this space. Yeah, sure. No, 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 no problem. So, yeah, as, as, you, as you've said, you know, we're obviously very pleased with the win. I guess just to give a little bit of context around that, um, it was more than just about the commercial banking um, offering in sustainable finance, which is where I, where I sit. Um, you know, it's about the wider approach that HSBC has on sustainable finance. So that includes our, we have a market reading, market leading centre for sustainable finance that produces, you know, some great research around transition, um, including a recent report, which we did on, on the just transition. Um, it's about how we engage more widely with industry bodies, such as the LMA and with financial regulators. You know, it's about how we train and support our frontline colleagues. Uh, this year, of course, you know, one of the key things was how HSBC had been had been supporting our clients through uh, through through the COVID pandemic and some of the work that we've done there in in providing financing support for, for lots of our customers. So. It is more than but just the work we do in commercial banking, but you know, I like to think we've got an important part to play in that in that in that success. So I, I guess just to sort of start, stand back from a group uh, perspective, I, I sit within HSBC UK, a, a group level. We have our a sustainable finance strategy, um, which has been in place since uh, 2017, and the aim of that is supporting our clients in the transition to a more sustainable, low carbon economy. You know, this is a key part of our as of our strategy supporting our clients through that transition. And we made a number of commitments when we launched this strategy, including providing $100 billion of sustainable finance globally to our clients, um, and also some commitments around our own operational carbon footprint, and also things such as, you know, we, we've adopted the um, recommendations of the, of the uh, task force for climate-related financial disclosures as, as well, uh, uh, in common with many other uh, many of our peers. In the UK, uh, I sit within the commercial bank in the UK, so our client base is um, quite varied. It ranges all the way from uh, SMEs all the way up to fairly large listed UK-based companies. And our role generally, again, is to support our clients through this through this transition. Um, and we've got several specific things that we look at. We look after our green lending proposition, um, including clean energy projects with our uh, infrastructure colleagues. Um, and we also involved in the day-to-day -day conversations that our clients have at a strategic level with 
with clients around sustainability, uh, which includes providing some targeted insights uh, around some of the issues and challenges that face that we face in certain sectors. So what we've done so far, last year we launched our green loan proposition in the in the UK. We had a number of a number of firsts. Uh, we did the first uh, LMA green loan principles compliant green lease, a bit of a mouthful, uh, for for Penham. Uh, we did the first green RCF in the real estate sector. Uh, and we've had some you know, really good successes in supporting our clients with sustainable financing, the real estate, transportation, and clean energy sector. But but there's much more to do when we're, you know, we're only just starting on this on this journey. It's incredible. And, and and what you've been doing there at HSBC, Rob, I mean, quite frankly, um, we've util- utilised a lot of HSBC's source material for us in, in developing our, our uh, strategy and work. I remember going back a couple of years ago, a report you guys did on institutional investment and particularly pension funds investing in the asset class, which was, you know, really informative and really, really helpful. So in terms of accolades, um, you know, it's aligned with the principles of responsible investment, you know, about HSBC helping many others, you know, not just its clients in this space. But in talking about clients, though, you just said that your role is mostly dealing with all manner of corporate clients from FTSE 100s to SMEs. Um, In terms of the conversation you've had with those clients when discussing green and sustainable finance, how is it different with different clients? Indeed, is it different? That's a good question. Um, yes, it, it is different. You know, I think I think uh, clients in both of those segments, as, as we call them, are, are at very different stages of their of their thinking, and there's very different motivations as well around wanting to be more more sustainable. For many of our larger clients, you know, they're they're listed. They may have regulatory requirements to disclose, for example, carbon emissions, and many will have had ESG reports in existence for for several years. Um, and they'll have many stakeholders who want them to see want want to see them take action on the topic of sustainability and, and particular climate, and that will range from shareholders uh, for, for, uh, and for the big brands, they are their customers, their customers are increasingly asking for this for this change, and and these are really important clients for us. The decisions that they make can have far-reaching implications across the supply chain, and I think if you look at the motivation for accessing sustainable finance i think one of the consistent themes is wanting to continue that engagement story with stakeholders including banks on their sustainability ambitions it's about telling that positive story about how they're looking to meet the challenge of transition and be more sustainable and how they've accessed green finance or sustainable finance from an institution such as hsbc with some of the checks and balances that that, that come with come with that so that's at the, the larger end i think i think at the smaller end, you know, SMEs are very important. You know, these are these are amazing stats, which I think it's easy to f- to forget. But in the UK, SMEs account for about sixty five percent of employment. They account for around half of all non domestic energy use, and if you measure by the number of businesses, they account for around ninety nine percent of all businesses in the UK. You know, it's phenomenal phenomenal numbers, and you know, we can't ignore companies like that in this in this transition, and. I think if you speak to some of the um, owners and, and 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 senior execs in that sector, you, there's a there's a variety of motivations for wanting to be more sustainable or to access sustainable finance. 
as some owners are personally very motivated by the need to take action to mitigate climate change. I mean, that comes across loud and clear. It's something they believe in um, and they expect their bank to believe in that as well. They often challenge us on, on what we're doing around our own, our own footprint. Um, so it's important that we're able to tell our own story clearly as well. I think if you look at some of the barriers identified by SMEs to investing in low carbon tech, the lack of the lack of technical knowledge is often identified, and that can be part of our role, particularly in that space. You know, it's about connecting clients together, about um, giving them access to stories about how some of their peers have have done certain things, invested in certain technology, and you know how that's worked and how that's helped them be more sustainable. So, you know, I definitely see that as part of, of of our role, and. I think there's also the um, you know, the supply chain impact of some of the actions that larger corporates take, particularly on net zero. I think that's a very you know very it's going to have very very far far ranging um, impacts. You know, if you've got a very large buyer who has a net zero commitment, they're increasingly looking down their supply chain to ask their suppliers. You know what are you doing to to help me with these ambitions? So that might be in the logistics sector where we where a buyer is looking to a supplier to reduce uh, emissions from vehicles, or in the agriculture sector where you know we've had examples of this where a supermarket is looking to reduce emissions in in its own food chain um, through asking its suppliers to use, for example, renewable energy to grow food. Um, so that I think that's 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 a, a uh, an important motivator in the, in the SME space, and and that can also be a motivator for accessing green finance. Again, it's about telling that story to your stakeholders on on some of the steps they're taking to be to be more sustainable. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's very different conversations, but but all size customers are important. As I said, SMEs are, uh, are such an important part of the economy that that we yeah, we need we need to include them in these conversations. I suppose I'm guessing. That in talking about net zero, you don't get too many clients coming in and, and talking about racing to zero. You know, you look at the latest hashtag and stuff like that on there on Twitter, um, and I'm sure there's more of a grounded conversation at looking at the practicalities and the here and now rather than that you know online pure propaganda of it all. Uh, and we've got a conversation in our world, you know, talking about how you can get carried away with all the propaganda and people talking about investing in this space. That's the private capital space. And always talk about the risks and returns and, and needing to sort out the base of the conversation in those, or base that conversation, I should say, in those core realities. Um, and we see in there that risk in itself is actually quite central to driving investment and driving the investment agenda. And conversations, you know, with, with our stakeholders and conversations with their clients. Um, but in terms of the risk profiles, you know, of your clients that you know, you know, how concerned are they with risks, that perhaps reputational risks of not addressing climate change, for instance? And also, are there any sort of deeper risks being considered there? You know, how sophisticated is that risk assessment process you know, within the corporate world in the UK? Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I, I guess to start with, it, it is sometimes about risk mitigation. Um, you know, I personally prefer to think in think of it in terms of the opportunity. Uh, you know, it's such a such a huge opportunity that's going to, that's going to uh, arise as governments look to meet net zero. Um, the number that's often used is $100 trillion of investment required globally to meet the goals of Paris. Uh, you know, the UK and, and Guernsey is going to be obviously a smaller portion of that, but it's still such a huge opportunity for clients. And 
you know, when I, when I speak to some of my clients, you know, one of the risks that they identify is if you're not active in this space, you can't, you will be able to meet your customer's requirement. And the customer can be, it could be the corporate, it could be an individual. Um, but if you can't meet your customer's requirement on this topic, you may miss that business opportunity and your customers will go, go elsewhere. Yeah, and that's one of the, that, for us, that's one of the key parts of what we know as transition risk, this, this changing of consumer and buyer behavior over time as you know, uh, um, yeah, consumer and buyer demands change over time. Um, you know, there's other parts of transition risk, technology risk, technology is changing. You know, that's a, a big risk for some, some of our clients. If you're looking to deploy um, electric vehicles, um, you know, some of the battery technology has moved on rapidly, but it's still a huge move to move from a business model built around uh, fuels to a, to a business model built around electricity and batteries. And there's that technology risk there that, that companies have to, have to try and get their head around. Um, so I think there's lots of reasons why businesses choose to be proactive. There's the opportunity, the risk of missing out because you're not meeting your customer's demand. There is an element of reputational risk mitigation. I think, yeah, I feel that's you know, maybe stronger in the, in the carbon intensive sectors. And that's probably more where you see that kind of conversation happening. Um, and there, there can also be an element of peer pressure as well. We've seen, we have seen lots of examples of, of some of our customers not wanting to be seen to be, be behind their peers, uh, either in your steps they're taking to be more sustainable or in, in accessing sustainable finance. Oh, that's, that's an interesting point, actually. And, and also, actually, when we talk about risks and the deeper risks in Guernsey, one of the interesting things we've been seeing is that when it comes to pricing of certain products, for example, there's a, there's a commercial lender here being able to offer a green loan note that's got better rates than ordinary loans. Is, is this a common trend or you know, is this something you've seen or aware of happening at all in the UK? Mm. It's certainly something that we're, that we're aware of. Um, I guess if we, again, step back and just think about how banks price uh, their loans, um, they're, you know, generally they they sign a risk rating to each of their clients and they and they have a loss given default you know they they are the two main uh, factors which go into the amount of capital the banks set aside against each of their each of their loans each of their assets and the risk rating is largely a function of financial performance there are some other things that go in there but generally in the corporate world it's it's a function of financial performance and banks price the margin they charge on their loan to give them an acceptable return on capital, and that's been that's been generally accepted for for, for a number of years. Yeah, I think where does that leave us when we think about the pricing on green loans? There's lots of activity at the moment in the banking sector around understanding climate risk. Regulators in the UK are asking banks to perform climate scenario modelling to see the impact on the balance sheet of various climate scenarios. Clearly, yeah, you know, this might translate into time into different risk ratings at the customer level, uh, depending how the customer is assessed for, for transition risk. Yeah, like that, that is something that could happen. And there's some evidence it's starting to happen. I know that there's a few French banks, I think, who are looking to apply different risk ratings or RWA allocations for green loans versus non-green loans. But, you know, I guess for me, there's a, there's a few things. Is it, is it really right that a green loan is less risky than a non-green loan? And particularly in the large corporate space, the pricing of a loan is, is, is quite complex. It's much more complex than I've described. And often the final position is a negotiate, negotiated position between the customer and you know, a very, very large number of banks. Um, you know, it, can be, well, it can be a double-figure number of banks and 
you know, it's that final pricing depends on where where the customer can negotiate with their banks. It's a function of uh, other business lines that the the banking group might have with that customer. It's not it's not a clear cut as a situation as you, as you may think. And in the bond market, although green bonds have a larger inve- investor int- interest around them. The pricing differential in the primary market is generally very, very small, or even, even in some cases, non-existent. So, it, it's it's a complex area. I uh, I think some banks have gone down that route, and you know that's fine. Uh, I'm not convinced it's something we'll see across the board at the asset level. I think it's something that we might see reflected in the overall risk assessment of the client, which might result in time in different pricing um, depending on where you are in that where a client is in that transition uh, transition story and how banks assess them, assess them for transition risk. I suppose at the end of the day for us, and particularly for us, I should say, the whole point about the green narrative, just you know, going back to when Sir Roger Gifford came to the island here and tried to make the point that the, the whole agenda in the green finance, it wasn't about a lot of return. You know, it's, it's about generating returns through investing in green sustainable assets. So therefore, it'd be a perverse irony, I think, if the pricing went the other way, in my opinion. Um, but actually, you mentioned sustainability and talking about green loans in particular. Um, but you also talk about sustainability loans. Um, or oh, I've seen people talking about sustainability loans, just to say. Can you explain to our listeners what the difference is? Um, there have been certain issuances in recent weeks, a very large sustainability loan by you know, an unnamed sovereign, I should say. Uh, and, and in my eyes, I've, they've, my eyebrows have been raised a little bit or not about whether that was particularly hypothecated sustainability, as it were, you know. But if you just take the, you know, the cynical me out of the, of the conversation, what's the, perhaps you can explain to our listeners what the difference is, what's going on there, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, in in the corporate world of green loans and sustainability loans, um, you know, the, the main difference is around uh, the use of proceeds. So, so, what that means is what the borrower can do with the with a loan amount once they once they draw it down. So, in the green loan loan world, um, there are there's an expectation, there may be restrictions that the use of proceeds of that loan will be used for something green. And by something green, I mean something that contributes to efforts to generally to combat climate change. It can be around other things, around waste and, and water and other things as well. So good examples of that would be you know, a green loan for a, a solar array on a roof, yeah, a green loan for a electric vehicle. It, the, the use of that loan is for a specific thing which has got a demonstrable climate impact. On the sustainability link side, there is the, that restriction doesn't exist. You know, the, the, the proceeds of the, of the loan can be used for for anything. Uh, the, the, but the difference there is that the, the lenders will look look to link the margin to pre-agreed sustainability KPIs. They can be a number of things. They can be um, they can be uh, social related. They can be governance related. Um, they tend yeah, they tend to have an environmental um, aspect to them and the most common we see is is around carbon emissions so you know in the oil and gas sector it might be uh, carbon intensity um you know we've seen examples where corporates have looked to link the margin to the amount of recycled um uh, material they're using their products you know it's that side of things so it's you know it's about linking your facility with your sustainability story as a uh, as a corporate I think there are some common themes which are probably worth worth talking about. Um, certainly for us, we you know we've we've aligned ourselves to 
um, external guidelines or principles about what makes a green loan and what makes a sustainability linked loan. So we've aligned ourselves to the loan market association's principles. I, you know, broadly, the aim of these principles is to make sure that some of the I use the word, some of the claims made around green and sustainability have some subst- some substance. So. Uh, so typically a lender might ask for a green loans, they might ask for some third-party evidence around the environmental impact of the project or the asset. Um, for a sustainability link loan, the lender may ask for the key performance indicators to be verified by a by third party. Um, and we'll also look across the industry to make sure that the targets are meaningful and, and, and have some ambition. So so there are there are differences, there are similarities, uh, and certainly for us. And also for our borrowers, you know, everyone should be very, very uh, of aligned interests to make sure that some of these claims are, uh, are you know, stand up to stand up to scrutiny. I think if I look forward, you know, green loans are generally more restrictive because they have that use of proceeds test. They work well for leases. They work well in the real estate world. Uh, term loans, project finance, they all work well for a green loan. But they work less well for revolving credit facilities, where a borrower can draw many, many times uh, for for a number of different uses. So I think we probably see sustainability linked loans having more potential for growth, and we we saw that certainly pre pre the COVID pandemic, we saw doubling or even tripling of volumes of, uh, of volumes of loans in in that market. Um, and again, the strength is it can be structured um, to fit around multiple borrowing products and you know there's not re- that restriction on, on use of proceeds that's an interesting point actually that i hadn't quite appreciated that pre-covid that, that was the case i'd seen it post-covid but the point you're making about requiring the sort of trust in the transparency on the use of funds is key actually you know when we ourselves went through the designing of our our own green finance products the guernsey green fund and ties green you know, the initial ones it was the verification, the, you know, it does what it says on the tin, as it were, that was for us the critical part, you know, to ensure that capital would be rooted for the purpose intended. So, again, I mean, it's just, you know, laughing out here, but it's a bit risky becoming podcast 101. But, you know, because you mentioned the phrase, phrase I should say, just transition, um, I just realised I asked you to explain something for our listeners earlier, but I'm going to do exactly the same thing again now. You know, you know, you mentioned just transition several times recently, or just then, I should say, to, to use too many justs in one sentence. Um, and I saw very recently a great report by HSBC on that issue. Could you just explain what the difference is between transition finance and green finance, you know, um, so that people you know, have a clear idea of what the difference is between the two? Green finance works well um, for certain types of assets. So we have that use of proceeds test. It works well for assets such as renewable energy, which are zero carbon emissions. And they, you know, in some ways, they're, they're almost the, in some ways, the end state of where we want to get to. Um, and they work well for renewable energy, for electric vehicles. Where they don't work so well is in sectors where, where the sectors are transitioning, where there is some way to go. There's some technological development required before we get to the final state we want to be uh, by 2050. Um, so that might be in the cement industry or or other industries where there are steps along the way to become um, more green, but not fully green. Um, so, you know, it, it tends to work. The example just tended to be given as being in countries where maybe at the moment they are wholly dependent upon coal-fired coal fire, coal fired power stations. And moving to gas is, is a step on the way to be 
uh, more sustainable to that zero carbon journey. And that's what transition finance is. It's about moving from where we are today to green, where there's no real uh, prospect right now of getting to the final end state of, of being fully green. In some ways, a sustainability link loan is a kind of a transition product. Um, it's about telling that story about how you're getting from where you are now to something more sustainable. Um, but there are things such as transition bonds, and you know, we may well see th- things such as transition loans um, being developed, um, which will you know, kind of address that market. Now, I won't ask you a third one, um, but actually I do want to ask you about something that you've mentioned a few times. And talk about that transition on a journey to a net zero commitment. You know, I've read and watched UK institutions making big public announcements. You've got disclosure regimes driven by TCFD. That's the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures, we both know. Lots of conversations on sustainable finance, disclosure regulations emanating from Brussels. You've got the UK. You've got the UK's Chapter Zero initiative by the IOD. Uh, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Boards, you know, the Big Four recently made their announcement on ESG. How do you see all these smorgasbord of initiatives coming together? In fact, in terms of how do you see them impacting on people's behaviours day to day? You know, what's the, I don't know, what's the current temperature take of how all this massive policy circus is impacting on people's lives daily and, and clients, you know, daily lives in lender? I'm borrowing, I should say. Yeah. So there's there's a challenge. I mean, you've you've listed you've listed yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you've listed a few there. That there are so many, and, it, and, it, and it's a challenge, a challenge in of itself to uh, to keep track of all of these. You know, and there's some other initiatives which you can add to that. You know, we've got cities such as London, Bristol, and others taking action around air quality in cities. Um, you know, there's lots of lots of initiatives. Uh, you know, I think for me, the one that dr- is has driven and will drive the most change will be the net zero commitment. Uh, you know, the UK legislator last year, I think Guernsey is probably about to follow suit, I think. Is that right? So, you know, and that for me is going to drive all kinds of, of change, you know, in the, in the UK where you know, we're expecting um, some papers around how, how all these sectors are going to transition. And that's going to impact all of our clients across any all sectors, irrespective of size. It's going to require new business models, new technologies, and it's just going to be such a challenge it's going to be interesting and exciting and i think for me that's the one that drives lots of change um we've seen other specific things impacting upon uh behavior i think i'll go back to air quality you know that for me has been you know a really big change over the last uh, three four years um if you think about buses in london uh, which is something i've been involved in uh, for a number of years uh, we now at a state where it's conceivable that all the buses in london will be be electric or maybe electric and, and hydrogen you know, there's lots of challenges around charging infrastructure there's some concerns over battery tech um, we've seen some good innovation around you know splitting out some of that risk uh, to outsource some of the tech risk to, to other to other operators but the long and short of it you know people are finding that, that their way through this and you know as i said we you know we could see a, a state probably not that too far in the distance where all of london buses including you know, huge double-decker buses could be electric. And I think it's just such a, an astounding change in such a short period of time. You know, I think if you look, if you, if you probably asked somebody three, four years ago, that, you know, we, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have foreseen that coming. Um, and there's plenty of other examples as well, you know, in the, in the building, in the, in the, in the real estate world, uh, in the UK, you know, we have minimum EPC ratings for letting buildings, you know, that's going to, that's going to drive behavior. I think it's unlawful to let a building with a EPC lower than E, I think, from um, two or three years' time. And that 
that must drive behavior um, for, for, for the owners of those kind of assets. Um, so yeah, so I, I, yeah, for me, for me, net zero is just that kind of overarching piece, which is going to drive all kinds of things. But we've got lots of other things as well, as you've described, Andy. Uh, on the banking side, there's lots going on around. Um, you know, the Bank of England, the PRA, asking banks to look more closely at the balance sheet. Um, there's so much. There is so much in this space. Um, but yeah, there's there's lots of lots of lots of things that we're seeing. Thank you. For that, Robert, I mean, you know, you've given me a real aid memoir about the real estate sector there, actually. Right there. We did an assessment ourselves and there's a, there's a huge market driver there in terms of the the need to invest in you know, improving the quality of the UK real estate assets. Um, so you're talking about something that you couldn't have foreseen. It's almost like I feel I've been robbing our listeners by not mentioning the topic before now. Um, but before I do conclude, I did see a comment on LinkedIn. I think it was a, a post of yours uh, about COVID-19 and climate change in parallel crises. And that's, yeah, I could talk about COVID-19. We've avoided it so far today. But it's a question I've you know, been recently starting with. But I thought I'd leave it to the end today. I mean, how do you see how one has impacted the other potentially in terms of our actions or, or indeed our learnings as a society? Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's been, you know, it's been a, it's been a very challenging time um, for, for our clients. Um, I think it'd be probably remiss of me not to say you know, HSBC and HSBC UK were, you know, we're really proud of some of the support we've been able to provide to our clients during the last six months. Um, you know, we've we've approved 137,000 bounce back loans, but totaling over four billion pounds. Um, there's been some tremendous effort. Uh, from from you know, many of my colleagues to to be able to live, deliver some of these products to some and solutions to some of our clients. Um, um, I, yeah, I think it's important to to recognise that um, from a sustainable finance perspective. You know, there's been a few insights we've we we took from the last few months. Um, you know, firstly, you know, sustainable sustainability has always been about more than just climate. Uh, climate is clearly such an important part. You know, it's one of the, one of the most pressing issues that the world faces. Um, but I think. The events of the last six months have reminded us, if we needed remind reminded that sustainability also includes things like resilience. It involves things like the place of corporates within societies. You know, I think that's going to have a uh, increased emphasis on some of those things. Uh, things going forward, you know, albeit as I said, you know, climate will remain such an important part of what we what we do. We, you know, we to begin with, we also. Started to look at some of the commentary around improvements in air quality. I live in London, and I, or the outskirts of London, and I, I noticed it, it was noticeable, uh, particularly during the, the lockdown period. That air quality was better, um, and we also some, saw some predictions about how carbon emissions might reduce year on year this in 2020, which is which is pretty remarkable. But you know, if you put that into context of what we need to do on carbon emissions to meet the goals of Paris, you know, it's barely dropping the ocean. Uh, we did some very rough calculations. That, uh, you know, we think probably you need to realise reductions like we're going to see this year, every year between now and 2030 to get somewhere where we need, yeah, somewhere where we need to want to be. You know, it, it just gives you a good indication of the scale of the challenge that we that we face. And you know, air quality. You know, air quality has probably gone back to normal around me, certainly as as the traffic's uh, the traffic's return. Um, and I think there is, I don't know if the lesson's the right word, a learning lesson. You can, you can use a word that, that you will. You know, the high impact events do happen, and you know we need to plan and try to mitigate. I don't think any of us will say we foresaw COVID, but 
the science has been predicting it for a number of years. And I think it's fairly safe ground to say that if we'd have planned for something like COVID, some you know, some of the impact and the likelihood in the first place might might have been reduced. And I think we can make and draw that parallel with, with climate change. You know, the science is clear. And the earlier we take action, the more chance we have to minimise the impact. Um, and, you know, if, if we do get into the stage where we're really starting to feel the impacts of climate change, I hope we never get there. I'm, I'm not sure what the what the equivalent of, of quarantining is for climate change. You know, it would be very difficult to uh, to deal with that if we, you know, if we, if we, if we get to that stage. Um, I think if I look forward, you know, the evidence so far is that public support for it climate change action remains intact which is which is great um but there's clearly a balance to be had between you know, there's a need to support businesses and get people back in work and also this urgent need to start real action as we start to explore some of the sector sector transition pathways to net zero um you know it's a, it's a difficult balancing act um but you know we need somehow to find a way to do to do both before we conclude, I'd just like to get a bit more of an insight. Um, and I always like to ask people this question when they come online to do our podcast with us. Um, we've got a couple of things in common, uh, me and you, ladies. Yeah, one of them is our love of sustainability, another being um, born in uh, God's County. Uh, and could perhaps um, ask you um, to give us a bit more about your, your personal perspective to get our listeners to understand how you got into this space and, and what your motivations are in the agenda. You know, just for a few moments. Uh, while, while we've got you here, as it were. Yep. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, look, it's, it's, it's been a, a long road. Uh, my, you know, I spent a lot of time in scientific research in, in modelling. Um, you know, I was a fairly late comer into the world of, of finance. I spent a lot of my, my 20s in the world of physics and uh, financial modelling, uh, which, you know, which saw me in good stead when I moved into into finance um my my route through the world of finance has always been about financing things you know assets and projects understanding how they work uh which was natural given given my background in in science and it was a fairly fairly natural move to the world of clean energy and renewables and now and now sustainable finance on a personal level i've got i've still got many friends who are active in this in the space of of science some of which actually moved from science into finance and then back to science again i've got one, a couple of friends who are now back in the world of climate change modeling and it was my it was my conversations with them i think probably 10 15 years ago that finally probably awoke what i already knew uh, climate change is one of the greatest threats facing mankind um yeah and they're, they're great contacts to have they're, they're very active in the space and you know i, I sort of bounce ideas off them and, and they uh and you know they uh, urge me to, to to move faster in some of the things that we're doing um but yeah I, i'm optimistic we can develop some of the technology we need to combat climate change and in the process you know we'll leave a, a cleaner more sustainable world for the next generation and, and finance has got a really important to play in that and that change and that transition and that you know that's motivation enough enough for me wow yeah and i think motivation for all of us um and it's, it's a great end point to leave on there you know finance has got an ability to be a force for global good in this world um and and thanks again very very much robert for your insights today it really has been fascinating and um, it's really appreciating to be able to hear from a, a corporate leader in this space and to be able to gain a, a better understanding i think of transition sustainability in particular um and in particular to re repeat that word i was taken with the, your explanation of the way that the market for the development of sustainable loans could even indeed be greater than green finance that's something i'm really taking away from our conversation and again also with some of the points you made about the retail market um it's very 
easy in this sort of big picture stuff to forget the real world, real life applications, specifically when we're talking about how sustainable finance can make lives better for people. So, Robert, thank you again very much um, for our listeners. Just to remind you that we've got a bag catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast platform. Check them out uh, by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you could find uh, you find them on guernseygreenfinance.org or weareguernsey.com. Interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. And we also have links to Robert's and HSBC's social media in our show notes. So check these out to hear more from Robert. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Thank you very much.